This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Field Guides. Our friends at Field Guides have led birding tours around the world since 1985. Their friendly expert leaders have joined together to create a new video series, Out Birding with Field Guides is all things birds, adventure, conversations with interesting bird people, ornithology, tales of discovery, cooking in the field even. Now, even when you're home, you can always go out birding with Field Guides. Visit outbirding.com ABA to check those videos out and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. My name is Nate Swick. I am the host of said program, at least most of the time. There's a couple episodes back there where I'm not. It's the last Thursday of the month, and that means this month in birding. But before I get to that conversation, I have one thing to note about the conversation that you're going to hear. So the panel and I talk about the mysterious bird deaths in New Mexico. You probably heard about those. Those are all probably all over your social media timeline and, and what possibly could have caused them. Well, literally the day after the panel recorded our conversation, the ABA, we meaning the ABA, posted an article on the website by Jenna McCulloch, a bird researcher in New Mexico, about those deaths and with some data-driven explanations for what caused them. And I'll, I'll tell you about that now. It was not necessarily the smoke. A lot of people think it was the smoke, not the smoke. Evidently, it was likely this massive overnight temperature swing that killed off a lot of the insects, which may have already been lower than usual because of a relatively dry summer. So this explains why the species that were affected were primarily insectivores. It was predominantly swallows, a lot of swallows, the handful of warblers and flycatchers. It was this shock, and you know, migratory birds are frequently on the knife's edge anyway. Uh, it was that shock that lost the insects. It was too much for the birds, and that's what caused sort of these very large die-offs. As I said, a lot of talk about it being the smoke. Maybe that may have played some role. Toxicology tests and necropsies on the birds may show some impact. But the fact that mostly insectivores were impacted suggests a bit of a narrower explanation. We didn't see lots of dead birds of prey or primarily frugivorous species. They were insect eaters, swallows mostly, so which means it's probably food related. So uh, the only thing I can tell you for certain is it was not 5G. Seriously, not at all. So stop, please, people who are commenting on Facebook, not 5G. Um, anyway, the article is in the show notes. The link to the article is in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, Jenna does a really great job of pulling everything together. So you can listen to this discussion as we make some good points, maybe some insightful points, but ultimately we all talk like a group of people who are confused by this phenomenon, which was accurate at the time. Would that we had known what was coming, not even 24 hours later. On the show, the This Month in Birding panel, it's Nicole Jackson, it's Nick Lund, it's Mo Stike, and it's me. All after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of September 2020. We have another big one. This fall means lots of birds moving around. I'm going to focus mostly on the first records with a couple that could be part of a larger movement of Asian birds to the West Coast. So in Oregon, an unusual Philoscopus warbler that looks to be either an Arctic or a Kamchatka leaf warbler in Lake County near the California border, most likely 
the former, but Old World warblers are notoriously difficult. This came the day before another Arctic slash Kamchatka leaf warbler, again, probably Arctic. It was seen in Orange County, California. So this suggests that something bigger is going on and birders on the West Coast should be out looking out for these birds. Two individuals means that there are probably more out there. Onto the first records, a quick jot back to Oregon, where a yellow-bellied flycatcher near Fields would represent a first record for that state, notably discovered by Dave Irons and Shawneen Finnegan, Dave the author of the ABA Guide to Oregon. They also found that weird Philoscopus warbler I noted above, so a very good week for cryptic first records for Dave and Shawneen. Hurricane Sally made landfall this past week, bringing with it a lot of rain and a red-footed booby to coastal Mississippi, where it represented a first record for that state. But wait, there's more. A painted red start in Fort Pierre, South Dakota, represents a first for that state. And a wood sandpiper, sort of the Euro square version of our familiar solitary sandpiper, was found in Lyndhurst, New Jersey, representing a first for Jersey, which is uh, pretty great considering how heavily birded that state is top to bottom. Those are the highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, and there were a lot of other cool birds this week, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba. You can also go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash group slash ABA rare or follow us on Twitter at ABA bird alert. It is the last Thursday of the month and that means it is time for this month in birding discussion about all the extra birding news that has been happening for the month of September. Uh, this month for September, I have convened a panel of old and new friends to help me make sense of this crazy, crazy world that we are living in where at least we have birds. Uh, first off, she is a naturalist, an environmental educator, and the creator of Black in National Parks Week. You can find her at WildlifeGirl09 on Twitter. She is Nicole Jackson. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Um, next, you know him as the birdist. Does anything more really need to be said? He is a regular here, and we're happy to have him back. Hello again, Nick Lund. Good afternoon, Nate. And... She is one half of the podcast, which still cannot be named on this podcast. Uh, bird shoot, bird spit. It doesn't matter. You can find it in the show notes. She's Mo Stike. Mo, how are you? Hey, great. How are you doing? All right. I'm excited to have you all here. Um, we have a lot of interesting stuff to cover this week. Uh, I want to lead off with, well, it's not a happy story, but it wouldn't be 2020 if it were. Most of the western third of North America is on fire. I hope that our listeners out there are safe and fire retardant. Into this uh, literal hellscape comes a report out of New Mexico where scientists and birders have reported finding a mass die-off of migratory birds, swallows and bluebirds frequently, but there are some others. No one knows what's going on. Is it related to the fires? Is it something else? Guys, I hate to lead off with this because it's, it is, uh, <laughs> it is kind of a depressing story. Um, what is going on here? What are your thoughts? Any thoughts at all other than sadness? I don't have any thoughts. My body is numb. Like I've been <laughs> drinking Novocaine to these things. And and it's hard to have thoughts on something like this where they don't know what it even what's even going on, right? I mean, yeah. I you know, smoke related seems like a thing. You know, if people out west can't even go outside 
because of the air quality. I can't imagine what it's doing to a tiny little bird trying to fly south, but I have no idea if it's related or some other incredibly awful thing that's happening uh, in the earth. So, you know, I was sent this story by a bunch of uh, aunts and stuff, and it's just, um, <laughs> I don't know how to respond. You know, I don't know what to yeah. respond. Just like, I hope uh, it's not, uh, I hope it's an isolated thing and not a big deal, and I hope all the birds... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of trailing off into nothingness is sort of my response to, to this as well. It's tough, I think what's yeah. hard about this is that we know so many reasons why birds die during migration, you know, like window right. collisions or light pollution or all these factors that the birding community and a lot of organizations have worked to control. And then just to read that like hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million birds have died in five different states. Like that's that's crazy like and, and to just not have an explanation it, it's it's like we know so much and yet how can we not explain this yeah yeah mm. nicole you're an environmental educator how would you explain this to people <laughs> um i instantly think about who knows about this and who would care yeah um just because of my background i i just feel like you know the fact that it's like white sands. I, I'm thinking of the the place that they mentioned, um, mm-hmm. national park, a place I haven't been to. Um, so I would just, in, in my mind, I'm like, I would love to go there and kind of just explore and, um, connecting it to this bigger idea around birds and, and the things that they need to thrive and survive. Um, yeah. there's a cutoff point for a lot of people, um, of, is this something I should care about? Um, mm-hmm. why is it important? And how can I be involved, I guess, if there's a solution to fixing this problem? Yeah. Yeah, I, mm. it's, it is it is one of those things that definitely seems to grab the attention of, you know, non-birders just because it is so dramatic. Part of me wonders, is this sort of thing abnormal? I mean, I, I, I don't know. You know, everyone has cameras around. Part of the reason this became such a big deal is because that person in... New Mexico had took a video of it, of the birds there. And I don't know how much of this is because, you know, people were there and were able to document it in real time or, you know, cause as Mo said, birds die on migration a lot. Like the, mm-hmm. the mortality rate, especially for young birds is really high, but this is, I don't know, this, this is different. Same. I, I have no idea how to approach this. It's such a strange story. Yeah, stories of mass die-offs like this make the rounds once every couple of years. I guess I'm yeah. thinking of the blackbirds that were dying. Yeah, yeah, in, in Arkansas, that, like Arkansas, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. a couple of, couple of years ago, and you know, there's the the mystery element of it to it that you know has some, you know, that catches people's attention. Yeah, but but I think you're right. Mo and everybody's right. You know, birds. You know, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service estimates that between 360 and like 980 million birds die in the U.S. every, uh, every year from glass collisions, right? Colliding mm-hmm. with with buildings. Mm-hmm. That means that means a million birds a day on the low end, if you average it out, uh, are dying. And so people may not be as interested in that because we do know the cause of it. Um, I, you know, the mystery uh, is maybe what hooks people in, especially if yeah, there's a potential to correct the mystery and protect some birds. But you know, mass die-offs, uh, human caused mass die-offs, are happening all the time. Yeah. And to a lot of people, it's, it's, you know, that 
connection to, okay, we're going through an apocalypse right now, if, if anything. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's got to be part of it too. <laughs> oh, God. It feels so weird to be, you have to laugh because what else is there? Good Lord. Um, Honestly, I barely even blinked at this. I was yeah, just like, okay, right. next. Uh, <laughs> of course this is happening. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is like 10th on my list of awful things today. Yeah, Ken Kaufman <laughs> posted something on um on either Facebook or Twitter or something along those lines, responding to this question, like what birds are doing in response to these, these wildfires. And, you know, to some extent birds are able to kind of adjust their migration to get around these things. I mean, who knows that may be part of the reason we're suddenly seeing all these like black throated gray warblers in the Eastern part mm-hmm. of the U S. Um, and also wildfires are not uncommon, you know, mm-hmm. the, the scale of these obviously is somewhat unprecedented, but wildfires in general are not an uncommon thing uh, in the American West. And uh, so, you know, birds would not be able to survive for however many millions of years that they have if they weren't able to deal with them in some way. So mm-hmm. if we're looking for a silver lining, maybe sure. that's it. I don't know. <laughs> Nate, when do you think this podcast going to come out? Next week, next Thursday. Okay, this is people will not remember this because we'll be dealing with like Mothra attacking <laughs> or like uh, something else. Like yeah. I, I really, you know, like it's 2020. Like yeah. um, anything goes. Anything goes. Wild cards. <laughs> yeah, people forgot about the hornets. So that's right. Uh, hornets. Oh, you just reminded me. Maybe the one upside is I know birding, you know, we talked about this in the spring, birding became such a popular hobby. Maybe this article will actually get a little more traction. Yeah. And now there are That's that many more point. people caring about birds to care about this happening. Yeah, yeah. fair point. Fair point. There you go. Some good optimism. Yeah. That's <laughs> all we got. I try. <laughs> Next up, we are going to be talking about an article from the New York Times. A lot of people are familiar with Christian Cooper because of the unfortunate incident that happened to him in Central Park earlier this year where uh, a white woman basically lied about being attacked by him, even though it was very clearly that she was in the wrong. And it was definitely an instance of racism that unfortunately we see all too often in the news these days. I think a lot of people know him because of being a birder and associated with the New York City Audubon. Mm-hmm. But he is also in his real job. He is a pioneering comic book writer. And what he's actually done is taken this experience that happened to him in Central Park combined it with all these other experiences that we're seeing in the news of all these terrible things that are happening to Black America and created this graphic novel called It's a Bird. It is published by DC Comics. It is only available digitally, but Mm -hmm. it's a really cool piece where it's about this young Black teenager who goes out. He's given this pair of binoculars, and every time he goes to look at a bird in Central Park, he actually sees the face or the um, instance in which a Black person is murdered by the police. So it's a really artistic and really thought-provoking way of him taking this experience that, yes, we could say this, this is something that happened to Christian Cooper, but he's extracted it into this really meaningful work of art that really highlights this wider systemic racism that we are seeing these days. Yeah, I thought it was is is really neat and and. You know, it reminds me of something that Donna Schulman said uh, on a podcast episode that I, when I talked to her about bird books a couple of weeks ago, where we were talking about Fancy Peacock's books, um, and he, she said like it's an example of what happens when someone who is really creative basically is giving free reign to do their thing, and um, yeah, that's what it feels like with Christian Cooper. Uh, taking this experience and making this into it, this really profound piece of art. 
that it involves birding, which is it's still uh, amazing to me to see birding in the in the public consciousness in the way that it has been through this story. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know the 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 birding is you know almost coincidental in the story, right? The, the birding yeah. is, is not really part of the story at all. And so I think you know while, while it is interesting to get birding in you know people have people think about it like that, it's you know I think that this book is really interesting in, in that he's you know taking this event that happened to him that I'm sure has happened obviously to lots of people and um, you know really playing it out in different ways and giving it sort of you know, giving it life and giving it art and using it to um, encourage people to think about it in, in really new ways, I think. And I think that's, I think that's great. I know I was talking to um, Taiki James earlier this year, uh, sh- actually shortly after Black Birders Week took off. And he was telling me that a lot of people that have recently found him on social media or have started, you know, interacting with the Black AF and STEM group think that birding is something that's like exclusively black and he's like how <laughs> cool is that yeah, because really like historically <laughs> that's absolutely not the case and they think <laughs> yeah, that's right. like a big thing that a lot of organizations are really working to like fix and like try to try to overturn and the fact that so many people who are new to birding because of because of what happened to Christian Cooper and like you said so many other people uh who try to get out in the outdoors and they're they're subjected to this kind of terrible acts uh, I just thought that was that was so cool to think that that maybe for younger generations, especially that we can turn turn heads and really, you know, create a new experience for people. Yeah, I'm happy for that to be the face of birding. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. You know, birding, thinking about birding as a hobby, uh, it, it's hard to know what birding is, right? It's, yeah. A lot of people are sort of unaware of why you would like it or, you know, what it actually is that you do. You know, it, it, at least when I started it's 15 years ago, you know, their connotations were kind of weird, you know, it's sort of part of the positivity of some of these stories getting out there is that people are just becoming aware of what birding is and that normal people do it and cool people do it. Um, and I think uh, just the, the exposure really will continue to drive people to the hobby. Um, so I think it's, uh, I'm excited for that. Yeah, I think this is really interesting in the sense of this two sides that you see from his experience being captured, I mean, being part of Black Birders Week was very inspiring um, just because it was created unapologetically. But speaking to, you know, the issues that we encounter as Black birders, as Black people um, trying to enjoy very basic things, (laughs) very basic activities. Um, But at the same time, I think it showed, although I, I felt kind of disconnected from a lot of just some of the interviews, just because there was just this continuous reference to someone's narrative. It wasn't mine in particular, but Mm -hmm. the issue was, was a reminder. It was very triggering of like, Oh, this is happening again. Do you know about the Christian Cooper story? Yes. I know about the Christian Cooper story. How does that make you feel? Well, Obviously, it wasn't a good thing that happened, and we're so very used to, you know, those things within our communities happening. So we, you know, within our own environments become numb to it, and we really don't get the chance to process those things, um, grieve or heal, because they happen so often. So for me, it was just more Mm. of, okay, when am I going to have space or time to really just 
enjoy this thing for what it is versus continuously going back to the negative, the violence, the destruction, mm. the, the triggering feelings of it. Christian's response to it, I think that resonated. Like he's just, I want to just get back to my life. You know, this is something that happened, you know, to some people very devastating because they just experienced that for the first time or witnessed it. But at the same time, it's mm -hmm. like we have these layers to us. You know, he's not just a birder. Like there's all of these other things that he yeah. does and, and enjoys and just wants to do. You know, do we get to that part of moving beyond the discussions that we've had so many times and really just putting another lens on it of, you know, these are just people and we have these uh, different versions of ourselves, I guess that's probably the best way um, to explain it. But like there's layers to us, mm -hmm. even within the black AF and STEM group, we didn't know, we didn't all know each other. It's, it's very interesting right. to see these, it be so layered and then it just be kind of cut down to like a sound bite for, for most people. Hmm. Do you think that this comic book will help broaden the conversation or does it narrow the conversation? I think it depends on the person. I think it depends on the group. Um, I feel like everybody's going to see it differently. Um, and some things are sure. going to, you know, some people are going to have epiphanies <laughs> from this. And other people are just like, mm -hmm. okay, well, that's not something I want to participate in or even just, you know, feel connected to. And that's okay. And I think Christian, you know, by making the decision that he did to, to not press charges and like it's his decision mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Like that's not for us to decide. Yeah. Um, so there's people that are going to be upset with that. Other people are going to be okay with that just because again, he wants to get back to his life um, and the thing and the things that he enjoys, mm -hmm. but that should be up to him to, to make that decision. And you know, the fact that he is this creative person, he's very just inspiring in that way to show like, Hey, I'm, I'm getting past this by doing these things, continuing to do these things that I love. My name is Nicole Jackson. I am the creator of Black and National Parks Week. So that came out of actually Black Birders Week, but a combination of Black Birders Week and my um, association with the National Parks Conservation Association. I am a Next Gen Advisory Council member and have been since 2018. And um, it's an advocacy group organization for the National Park Service, kind of like friends of the National Park Service. Yeah, it took me some time to kind of really kind of fine tune what made sense to me and what things I could highlight, but mostly around the history involving the creation of the National Parks, um, starting with the Buffalo Soldiers and their story and how they contributed, but also thinking about, you know, the the present and moving towards the future and, and what that would look like and how people can get involved and also educate themselves um, because it's a huge park system. There's 419 parks within the National Park Service. And a lot of people just think of the 62, you know, including Grand Canyon, mm -hmm. Yosemite, Yellowstone, but then there's, you know, national monuments, there's historical sites, there's cultural um, sites. So there's so many more layers that people don't really connect um, the dots or even don't even realize that they've been to that I wanted to kind of hone in on and, and really have a discussion of how people can get really involved um, 
with its origins, but have bigger conversations of how they can get involved and how they can um, bring communities together to, you know, really bring home that uh, parks are for everyone. Yeah. We have a National Park Service um, site here in Greensboro where I live. It's a national battlefield, but it's beautiful. I go birding there all the time. That's awesome. That's a, That would yeah. be a great spot to bird watch. <laughs> it is. It's, um, you know, it's got this nice two mile car loop that you, it's like a real easy walk. And it's, uh, you know, it's some of the best forest in, uh, in town. And they're like nesting wood thrushes and stuff like right in there. It's, it's great. I actually, I used to work at the National Parks Conservation Association for several years, NPCA. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, so awesome to hear that Nicole is part of the Next Gen Council. Um, I remember when that council was set up uh, by my friend Christina Camrith back in the day. Uh, And I'm I'm so glad that uh, it's still going and that they're getting such great folks to be involved. I think about birding in the parks all the time. I love the National Park System all 419. Um, (laughs) Part of one of the things I did when I worked at MPCA was I made a list of the national park sites with the biggest bird lists. So I very painstakingly uh, (laughs) pulled together all the eBird hotspot lists from every single national park site. Um, And, you know, for a lot of 400, all 400 plus and yeah. four oh my gosh. and there's more than one hotspot for most of them. right oh yeah um, definitely any of those so it was a lot of work this was in 2017 i don't know how much has changed but um can anybody guess what the number one site was i, I will say the one of the overall lessons is that you know and we know this as burgers that mm-hmm. um you need to have some habitat diversity if you want to get big numbers right yes. yep um you know a lot of parks uh yellowstone unbelievable place but basically one uh, ecosystem the whole way. I've, I've birded Yellowstone. I, I have to say I was a little disappointed in the birding. I mean, the <laughs> mammal watching is right. next level. Mammaling but the birds, <laughs> yeah, birds a little little dry on the birds. Shout so out to I, uh, Black Mammalogist Week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing it right now, aren't they? Yes, they are. All right, so <laughs> let me try to give a hint for the top three. It's got to be a seashore is my the, guess. So you're on the right track. So number three is the, is the only national park in the top three. Uh, it's in Texas. I knew this one because I this was the only vacation I was planning to take before COVID ruined everything. <laughs> My oh. husband and I were like, oh, it's only going to take us four flights to get from Maine to Big Bend National Park. <laughs> so, you know, it, it ended up being fine because I was so sick with my pregnancy that there's no way I would have been able, able yeah. to, like, leave the plane probably adding turbulence into that right. situation would have been pretty <laughs> oh rough. god yeah but i i was i was happy to see that we made a good choice even though we didn't get to go mm. yeah. it's an awesome place uh, and yeah big ben national park in texas 360 species um you know it, it's famous for kalima warbler but uh tons of good birds it's migrate more than there, some states yeah although texas is really like like seven or eight states like really true before. And Big Bend should be its own state, I think. I mean, it's, it's one of those <laughs> yeah, sort of, state you know, of Big Bend. Yeah. islands up there. Number two uh, is a national recreation area, okay. heavily birded, I think, which helps um, helps here. Is it um, – I'm, I'm, so a rec area is uh, – those are beaches a lot of times, aren't they? Yeah, they're generally coastal. They're near urban yeah. areas a lot of times for so people can attend. Uh, I'll spill the beans. This is Gateway National Recreation. Oh, Gateway! Okay. Well, I would not have guessed. I was going to say Cape Cod, but partly in New York, partly in New Jersey. Some great it's heavily over burdened. There. Yeah. And the number one is a seashore. And let me just say, you know, this place 
so it's a seashore coastal the the shape of this is a great migrant funnel is it is it point reyes point reyes 405 species well done man yeah a lot of it's you know that's one of the best uh Best birding sites in California. The place is incredible. High, yes. high rarity potential and just yep. great birding in general. That was actually high my first there. national park. No way. Really? Yeah, wow. And Starting was... off, it's all downhill <laughs> from there. <laughs> that was the very first one that I'd been to. Um, and that was with my, my, through my training with Outdoor Afro. Oh, huh. nice. Um, yeah. So I'd never. Right in their backyard. Yeah. I'd never been to, um, I think this was my second no this was my first time going to california um and it was amazing um we didn't get to do any bird watching we we did see (laughs) wildlife um our uh park ranger our park guide um gave us a tour by horse which i thought was fantastic awesome and um just the fog just being able to see the fog roll in after our hike was magical so i would definitely go back specifically for the birds yeah, I um, I, I, here in North Carolina, we have a couple wonderful national park service uh, place. We have obviously Great Smoky Mountain mm. National Park. It's where I got my state black cap chickadee. It's one of the only places in the state you can get black cap chickadees. Mm. Not in, not very impressive to you folks in Maine, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm sick of them. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, obviously Cape Hatteras on the seashore can't beat it. Wonderful place. And also shout out to the Wright Brothers Memorial just over the yeah. over the bridge there. It's yeah. a nice That's right. elevated birding spot. Some birding huge spot. dunes there. It's very cool. Love them huge dunes. Not no no sandworms. Um, there no spice. But uh, <laughs> trying to make a rem- uh, yeah. All right. Anyway. <laughs> wow, stretch. <laughs> yeah, it was a stretch. Yeah, give me a second. I might have pulled something. <laughs> <laughs> This is like the perfect Florida bird article. Like, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> just really. This Florida up. man, we have Florida birds. Yep, yeah, Florida <laughs> birds. Uh, so this comes to us from the Ledger, and it was a study that was done by Florida Atlantic University researchers over the course of two years. They compared the diets of these wood storks that were in more um, urban areas compared to ones that lived deeper into the Everglades. About not only what they were eating, but also, you know, reproduction and how the birds were doing in their habitats. And the results, perhaps not that um, groundbreaking, were that urban birds were eating a lot more regularly, even if the diets that they had consisted of like a lot of human food. So hot dogs, waffles were like two of the examples that they gave. (laughs) And as a result, they're producing a lot more young than the wood storks that are in more natural areas, since the ones in the natural areas tend to have to deal with different water levels that disperse the fish, make it harder for them to find food in their habitat. Um, And I think it's just another example. We talk about this on on bird shirt podcast (laughs) a lot (laughs) about (laughs) just the, the, the way that landscapes are changing for birds and the impact that the human landscape is having on these habitats that birds have, you know, inhabited for so long and how some birds are able to adjust, like, this is really great for the woodsterks, but what does it mean for all these other birds that are also having to adapt to urban areas and aren't able to make mm-hmm. that shift? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. shout out to woodsterks for eating <laughs> hot dogs and waffles and <laughs> yeah. apparently being very productive as a result. But, um, you know, the, the, I think this is something that's just going to continue coming up a lot in the future is how do humans interact with birds? How do the way we change the landscape impact 
their lifestyles. Um, I don't know. There's there's a lot to digest here. Not, not yeah, that was literally. a bad pun. Oh wow! <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> didn't even need that. <laughs> no, I'm leaving it in. <laughs> I, I I thought it was amazing because like in my birding lifetime, like wood stork has gone from an endangered species. Mm. Like they were an endangered species not mm. that long ago, mm-hmm. and now they're eating trash waffles. <laughs> Like, what a what a journey! What a journey! <laughs> I think about the masks. <laughs> That's the first thing yeah. I think of. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah. And that eventually, I mean, obviously, plastic has been a, a big issue, but yeah. like now, the masks have become one of those things that we incorporate yeah. into these stories. So definitely, I mean, I feel like the food—just memories of me going to, you know. Cleveland Metro Parks and being attacked continuously um, while eating McDonald's by gulls. <laughs> Nightmares. Um, Is that your spark bird tickle? <laughs> <laughs> your, your spark experience? Spark rage. <laughs> yes, definitely spark I got into rage. burning because I hated them. <laughs> so I think maybe the solution is like we need edible masks, right? Like <laughs> that's, that's really got to be like the part that this comes together. Are they not edible? I've been... Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sure someone's making those right now um, as we yeah, speak. Fruit roll-ups, <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. But um, I do remember someone posting about that, cutting the masks, kind of like mm-hmm. the the plastic tabs for the like drinks, the aluminum. Yeah, the the soda things. Yeah, yeah. We had yeah. those emphasized uh, as a young environmentalist. Mm-hmm. You got to cut those those uh, soda can things up so they don't get caught on birds. So I guess we're gonna have to do that with masks too. Right. So I thought I just thought that was very interesting. Of like, okay, this is where we are right now. So yeah, I saw a picture today somewhere of a mallard with a mask around its neck. Oh. Maybe it was just trying to be responsible. Yeah. <laughs> It, well, it was wearing it very improperly. It was down around yeah, the wow. area, so yeah, that's not unusual. Someone should scream at that duck. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> okay, well, in this dark time, there's the tiny shimmering glint, with some potential hope, which is in, involves schools and sports and mascots, uh, which is something that I care a lot about. The University of Illinois. Yeah, about a decade ago, got rid of Chief Alinawek, this this offensive stereotype of a mascot, mm-hmm. uh, and has been without an official mascot since then. They are the team name is called the Fighting Illini, and it's that's going to stay, uh, but they don't have a mascot uh, until potentially now, when the faculty senate is voting in the near future, the next couple of days, on whether to accept the belted kingfisher as their mascot, which is. The best choice in the world. Uh, I it's a think fine choice. I hold belted kingfishers and the kingfisher family in such high esteem. Uh, I think they are uh, bold and bright, and they loud. are loud, <laughs> and they are cool because they dive into the water and grab fish. I think they've uh, sort of long been overlooked by sports teams as a potentially cool mascot. And I am proud of the University of Illinois uh, for thinking of it. I I have a piece uh, that should be on Audubon.org about this coming up. I spoke with um, uh, a delightful young lady named Spencer Halsey, who originated the the Kingfisher mascot and is now shepherding it, um, hopefully, through things, um, facing, of course, resistance from mostly alums, she said, who uh, who want to keep the stupid old one. But... um, but the the but the school the the students voted overwhelmingly in favor of adopting the belted kingfisher. That's great. 
it, uh, the female Belted Kingfisher uh, matches the blue and orange color scheme of the school. I'm psyched, and it's keeping me afloat during these dark times, <laughs> um, the fact that something good might happen. Nick, I know you and I are of one mind on this. More bird mascots. Yes. Bring, bring it on. There are so many good ones and yeah. so many bad ones. Uh, <laughs> there are bad ones, and sometimes mean, they are fun as well. Well, but I mean bad ones that aren't birds. Like there are so many oh, ones yeah, that should right, be ditched, right, right. not just because they're offensive, just because they're stupid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's like every, tons of them are like that. Uh, and so, you know, unlike, for example, uh, the Missouri Tigers, God bless you, uh, there are no tigers in Missouri, right? There are no wildcats at Northwestern, but they are, I, there are. I grew up in Missouri. I can attest that there are no tigers there. And uh, my high school mascot was also a tiger, uh, right. of which there are none. This is Belt of Kingfisher. You can find them on campus at the University yep. of Illinois. They're all over the place. Uh, you know, uh, that connection between the real living bird and the mascot, I think, is really important and really cool. And, and um, that doesn't happen nearly enough. That would encourage me to go birding. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think about that occasionally, whether, you know, people in Baltimore are out there trying to find Orioles or Blue Jays <laughs> in Toronto. I, I want to think that's true. But, um, you know, more often than not, I just think about how, like, to build the stadium, they mowed down a bunch of, you know, bird habitat. And then, <laughs> and then put yeah. up the stadium and named it after a bird. I, I will say when I was researching this article, I learned about Scrappy. Have you guys heard about Scrappy? No. no. Oh. Scrappy apparently is the mascot for the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and he's a mockingbird. He's a oh. northern mockingbird. All right. Oh. That's a good uh, – that's another good bird mascot, and Scrappy is a really appropriate name for a mockingbird. Scrappy is uh, I what know. I would describe a mockingbird as, yeah. <laughs> exactly, and they're kind Are they of, the mocking what, – what's their team name? Um, They're technically the mocks. Oh, okay. Like after moccasins, yeah. so like that's mm. still pretty awful, but <laughs> it, it's kind of like this weird <laughs> – this weird dichotomy of like our mascot's a bird, but we're actually still named for this really <laughs> racist problem. Um, or the snake. So I mean, it could be the, like, I always thought it was the snake. Oh, you know what? That's a good point. Oh, I bet but it's the they snake. Do a, no. I guess a snake mascot. Is John, edit it, out yeah. all of that. I just, I forgot about snakes. <laughs> Suffice to say it's a bird. I don't know who would win between the bird and the snake though. Are you sure it's on after the turtleneck style? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm excited for the prospect of the belted kingfisher coming out of the Big Ten. Uh, I am too. I uh, I will buy a logo shirt immediately. Is there going to be an announcement, an official announcement of that? Well, no. It's actually funny talking to um, Spencer. There's mm -hmm. no like procedure for this. There's mm -hmm. no rule. Nothing in the school uh, is preparing anybody for this, and so she and nobody else at the school really knows like when it's done uh, or like what, what it takes to, to, to actually have it be adopted. So, uh, you know, the students voted in favor of it. Um, she's got support from the faculty and from the Senate coming up, um, she thinks, uh, but nobody knows like when it's actually adopted. So um, there'll be an announcement uh, at some point, I hope, but nobody mm -hmm. knows exactly when. Someone should just start making the t-shirts right. and just, just pretend like it, it happened. Yeah, they basically have. There's a, there's a ton of um, logos and stuff around there. She Spencer said that she's been contacted by um, some guy who is like the the, the big time <laughs> mascot costume designer around. Mm. He's like wants to make up some drawings. And mascot Hall of Fame yeah. has been in touch with her. This is so happening. Awesome. This is happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
this is probably the first of the This Month in Birding that we have done recently where we have not talked about bird names. That stuff is still going on. Check out birdnamesforbirds.wordpress.com if you want to learn more about that. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about really bad bird names. I want to talk about some good bird names. What is your favorite bird name? Hmm. You know, I think about this stuff constantly. Um, I I, uh, (laughs) am fully supportive of renaming birds I've, I've been on record for a long time about how bad you know badly birds are named and i think a lot about you know what, what it means to be a good bird name um i'm really generally opposed to the old you know adjective body parted bird name thing right like you know red-legged thrush um i just think that's so boring um and limiting but i've noticed that i think that a lot of the renaming birds uh discussions most of the solutions are that that adjective body part bird um the best bird names are the ones that aren't words otherwise right it's a unique name uh for that creature something that came out of nowhere it, uh, and i think that those bird names give birds uh an agency that they don't have otherwise you know they're not sort of um they're not being cataloged in a way they're they're giving um, given their own life that way. Um, you know, a lot of those names I think are, uh, and I'm going to, I can't never pronounce this, but onomatopoeic. Onomata, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether the uh, adjective is onomatopoeic or onomatopoetic or whatever, but yeah, I, I hear what you're <laughs> you saying. Know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. It's something, somebody, someone out there was like, uh, how do you, how do you say what that bird is sounding like? Um, and so, you know, bobolink, right? Like, Bob- bobolink. Bobolink. Name? The coolest name. It's the it's best name. name. Um, and, uh, and it's unique, right? There's no other, that's not a combination of letters that exists for any other context. And so I, I think the best bird names are like that. The, the others I think are, um, you know, ones that are foreign languages um, that, you know, are, are in English, like, um, like Verdun or Phanopepla. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Verdun is Greek or, or Phanopepla is Greek, I guess I'm sort of venturing into Rick Wright territory here, but, um, <laughs> uh, and, I, and I, and so I think those, you know, words that are not, um, Otherwise, names in English, I think, always work the best and yeah. end up being the best, which I, which is why I think, honestly, uh, frankly, uh, the discussion recently in the um, not wanting to adopt certain Hawaiian names for birds, um, I think is a real miss um, because um, those those are beautiful names. They are the names that the that the birds were first called by humans and they they um, turn into beautiful names in English. They're definitely fun. I like Akiapulaau. They're fun to say. They're fun to say. Akikiki, Akikiki, Akikiki. So, so that's what I think. I, I like uh, I like names that aren't names of anything else. I hear you. Bobolink definitely top tier in my book as well. I don't think I've seen enough birds to have an opinion. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's still going to be a journey for me, just because there's so many I've yet to um, experience or even read about. So, but I, I instantly think, okay, so the ones you just mentioned, um, what is you said, Bearden. What was the other one? Yeah, Verdun, uh, Perloxia, was that what you said? Or Phanopepla? Uh, Either one of those. Phanopepla, yeah. Perloxia. Perloxia is too much. (laughs) Too far. It's over the line. It's over the line. So I think birds that you hear their names and then you see them and they're even more fascinating than what the name, Mm. like what you would expect from the name. So like for me, it's always been the shoe bill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Evocative. Yeah. And then the secretary bird. Yep. Also very good. Mm-hmm. Of just like the, the, the drasticness, like it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's very like night and day. 
And I feel like every time I see a shoe bill, I like it's going to steal my soul yeah. if I look at it for too long. <laughs> <laughs> but then the secretary bird is very just the, the elegance and the, the grace of this bird is just fascinating to me. So, yeah, I think in just learning the bird names and then actually seeing them um, with a whole different lens, um, I think it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so you have a thing for very tall birds of sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the widow bird. Yeah, oh, those are cool. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That yeah, was my first long tail. encounter in my biology class was the widow bird with the long, dramatic tail, the male. So when you said widow bird, I'm like, that sounds very mundane. It's very boring. <laughs> and you, see, you see the male and you're like, wait, what is going on here? Like, what is all this? It's just like this the theatrics of it, I guess, is, is yeah. very intriguing. Totally. What about you, Mo? Piggybacking a little bit off of what Nick had said, uh, my husband has recently gotten into birding, and we saw our first black-throated green warbler this past weekend, and he still can't actually name the bird that he saw. Like He's like, <laughs> it's the green-throated... Wait, no, the black... Uh, it's, well, a uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. But... I will say the black and white warbler is like the only warbler that I can definitively say like, oh, that's, I know that warbler because mm-hmm. it's black and it's white. And yeah. I, <laughs> and that's gotta be what it is. <laughs> there's no varying shades of yellow or like muted no. olives. Right. Like there's none what of What about black pole though? What about when the black pole Don't even start, Nick. Even... I just punched the hole right now. <laughs> well, you gotta, it hurts. You gotta go check your ebird and check it. <laughs> I know I should. Don't tell my husband. He's going to get all in a tizzy about it. Um, but but the other one that I really love. Sorry. The only, I'm like, I don't know. I'm immature, clearly. But <laughs> I just love saying ruddy duck. Like, I could say <laughs> ruddy duck forever ruddy, and never get sick duck. of it. Yeah. That's my son. My, my Well, I don't mean to, this to be a backhanded insult or anything, but my <laughs> two and a, my two and a half year old also loves to say ruddy duck. He says ruddy duck constantly. Yeah. We have a lot in common. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so I asked this question on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago and I got a ton of good responses. And one of the, one of my favorite one, and I'm totally going to steal it from Ken Kaufman. Like I've already stolen something from Ken Kaufman already uh, on this conversation. Chaco Chachalaca. It's mm, uh, <laughs> just a fun, fun thing to say. And yeah. uh, I would be all in favor of whatever bird authority is out there changing the name of Chachalacas to Chachalacos so we could have the Chaco Chachalaco. <laughs> <laughs> let's make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Come on, AOS, after you're finished with all those uh, eponyms, let's get this one going. <laughs> it really sounds like a, like a candy bar to me. It is. It is. It's totally yeah. a candy. <laughs> That's a Wonka invention right there. Choco Chachalaco. Yeah. Yeah. There is the Choco ice cream. <gasps> Choco yes. Taco. Yes. Yeah. Taco. Yeah. You get a picture of a Choco Chachalacha eating a Choco Taco. <laughs> <laughs> With wood storks. <laughs> yeah, <that's- laughs> wood storks would totally be all over that. <laughs> All right. All right. That's that's as good a place as any to wrap this up. Thank you. Uh, you can find all you can find more about all my guests in the show notes. They all have social media profiles that you want to check out and uh, definitely read. I uh, definitely listen to uh, Mo and Sarah's podcast as well. Thank you, Nicole, Nick and Mo. Hey, have a great October. Thanks for chatting with me. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. See ya. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. 
really helps us out, especially in these uncertain times. We have memberships at whatever level works for you, including e-memberships where you get your magazines in the email. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. Want to make a special shout out to Richard Norris of Katy, Texas, Whitney Lenfranco of Puyallup, Washington, Justin Roberge of Lake Mary, Florida, Kim Wilson of New Bedford, Massachusetts, and Patrick LeClaire of Essex Junction, Vermont, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for that and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Another thing you can do if you're feeling really helpful or maybe a little strapped for cash, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. I'll be real with you for a second. Nothing makes me weep more than a one-star review, and we have three of them. So please, if you enjoy this podcast, go over and water them down. Look, I would even ask for a five-star review. Four, four is fine. It would probably give this podcast four stars, but I'm very self-critical. Anyway, this helps people find us, which I very much appreciate. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who watched that Dune trailer and immediately wondered if Arrakis has any sand grouse. Technical production is by John Lowry, who told me that if he had access to a guild navigator, he'd probably use it to zap down to Columbia every morning instead of waiting for migration in Michigan, and I can't blame him for that. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who wonder whether the rapid expansion of the scaly-breasted Munia, also called the Spice Finch, doesn't have something to do with overuse of melange. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. So hear me out. Wouldn't the presence of a kilometer-long sandworm suggest the presence of an American robin with a three-kilometer wingspan? I mean, think about it. Questions and comments, corrections can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.